British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, to me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is October 11th, 2018, and this is episode 107. Politicos is the BC Politics Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you found us. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicos Pod, and support the show at patreon.com slash Politicost. I'm Strad Boom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. And as always, our intro music is Beautiful British Columbia by Sergei Plotnikov. On today's show, we're joined by Alison Tan of Policy Pop-Up. Allison's going to tell us what that is and how she's getting millennials to like politics, something we're really into. And we're also going to talk about tax economics because we want to get millennials out of politics and find the most boring subjects. And then we're going to talk about climate change and how the world is going to end. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics, where we find out about such depressing news as the IPCC report and tax economics. Sign up for a free trial to get that kind of unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners, enter the offer code CITIZEN for a special rate. For your free two-week trial, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. And a reminder, we are moderating a PR debate hosted by the Canadian Club from 11.30 to 2 p.m. on October 23rd at the Terminal City Club. The debate's between Suzanne Anton and Seth Klein have a link in the show notes where you can buy tickets that include a lunch. And a reminder that registration for this does close on Friday, October 19th, so do get your tickets early. So for our first segment, we're going to introduce Alison Tan. Welcome to Politicoast. Hello, thanks so much for having me on here. Alison, so you created a little group called Policy Pop-Up, but before we get into that, maybe tell us and listeners a little bit about who you are and why you're interested in talking about politics. Mm-hmm. So, yes, as you said, my name is Allison. I have worked in policy for most of the time after university. I worked in a think tank, not as a policy analyst, but in education programs. So I worked on, you know, getting youth together, especially in journalists, etc., and breaking down policy and specifically economics. And now currently I work as a public servant, so not political, for the government, um, specifically in the Ministry of Jobs, Trade and Technology. And before that, I mean, I was thinking about this when I was writing down my notes for for the show. My first job was actually as a figure skating coach. So, you know, throwback. I uh, have really enjoyed policy, education, and then engaging youth. So those have always been my, my passions for sure. So why did you start Policy Pop-Up? Mm-hmm. So Policy Pop-Up just launched in um, the summer, so this past summer, and specifically because of the Trans Mountain Pipeline. That's kind of what initiated all this. So I had been following the news, so I, you know, I've got the Twitter feed going, I'm watching the news, I'm following it. But for some reason, the Trans Mountain Pipeline specifically, I could not keep up with. So there just was so many developments and, you know, it was really complex, and I didn't have that history and the um, knowledge of years past, you know? And so I, it was really hard to keep up, honestly. And so that's when I started thinking, if I generally keep up with policy and I really try to follow the subject and I can't keep up and I don't know what's happening, then there must be other people, essentially. And so that's where the idea for Policy Pop-Up came. And uh, 
yeah, so we launched our first event was on the pipeline. Super interesting. We brought together a panel of experts, including a pipeline engineer from Alberta. She was female too, which was super cool. And, you know, she sat alongside an environmental lawyer and a bunch of other people. But anyways, um, <laughs> altogether, we were able to have a really civil conversation, which was kind of cool and bring together different viewpoints. They all tackled different areas. Yeah, it was a, it was a really good event. It was a lot of fun. And so we thought, let's continue. And so that was here in Vancouver. And how many people did you end up getting out to that? For our first one. So what we, I mean, the idea probably came to me in June, July-ish. A month later, we launched that event. So August 13th. And we had about 50 to 60 people come together, which was awesome for just a month. And being like... All people you found or who found you through social media and stuff like that? Yep. Social media, the speakers networks. Yeah. They somehow found us and thought it was a good idea to come out and it was great. It was a lot of fun. So what's the format of policy Mm pop-ups? I mean, we've only had our first one, so (laughs) I can't quite comment on the overall how it's going to go. I mean, the key is that we're experimenting. So we're tweaking certain things here and there based on, you know, how the last event went. One interesting thing for this one was that we had um, questions also sent through social media. So for people who were there and and maybe were a bit shy, like I feel like that sometimes at at events too, I don't always want to stand up in front of everyone and hold that mic and and ask my question. So we had that. Each person who was on the panel tackled a different area. So we had safety and spill response. We had legal and um, future precedents. We had what is a pipeline 101? Like, why do we use pipelines? Why is this so controversial? And then we also had Dr. George Hoberg, who talked about just the environmental consequences or effects of the pipeline and why there is so much controversy around this pipeline specifically. Yeah, so everyone just tackled different areas. And I mean, for the next one, I guess I can talk about it now. Sure, yeah. You have another one coming up very soon. Yeah, we're hosting um, one on October 22nd, Monday at 6 p.m. after work, and it is also on electoral reform and the referendum. So, I mean, for those who might not be able to come to your awesome event... um, Which is very expensive, and we apologize (laughs) for that, but it includes a fancy lunch. It does include lunch. Ours, unfortunately, does not include food. Um, But but how much do your events cost? They're free! That's important to say. Yeah. And this one is at Earl's, so we're really lucky to have it at Earl's, Yale Town. Just upstairs, they have a loft area, which is kind of nice. I mean, for these pop-ups, what I'm trying to do is bring it out of the university kind of classroom lecture style settings and bring it into places that are really comfortable, cozy, less so much, like I said, lecture style. And so that's why we have tried to stay away from those classrooms and bring it into a place like Earl's and the loft area specifically. Our speakers for the event include Suzanne Anton as well. So she'll be coming to our event and then heading to yours the next day. And we have Josh Mesmer, kind of a hidden figure, but he is from this here Vancouver. He makes really cool YouTube videos, breaking down politics and various other topics that come to mind. He's a student, super interesting, and he's going to use his demos almost, like his YouTube videos, break it down, use it in the event and 
bring people up to speed using these really cool visuals and comparisons to Mario Party, Hogwarts, all that kind of fun stuff to describe the different PR options we have like rural urban, mixed member, dual member, etc. and really show what that would look like and simulate it um, using his video. So that's going to be really interesting. And we have Stuart Prest. He's going to be moderating. And we have Amandeep Singh. He's repping Fairboat BC. So we've got a great lineup. And so what kind of feedback did you get after the first event from the people who found it and decided to show up one random evening to this pop-up event? Yeah, Um, we definitely take feedback really seriously. So after this event, we also launched a survey um, to everyone who also subscribed to the website. So not just people who were there, but just in general, what do you think about these events? Like when is a good time to hold them? What do you want more of? Some of the feedback that we got was um, having more time to discuss with one another and kind of chat with the other people who were in the room on their views as well. And so for the next one, that's, that is what we're going to do. Kind of a spoiler alert, I guess. I think a nice con- uh, conversation starter is just even the name tag portion of it. I've really thought about this. Um, <laughs> we're going to have it by color. So people are going to come in, pick their name tags. We didn't do this. No name tags last time. And already kind of come in with what they think. So do they already support a change? Do they want to keep the system? Or do they not know? And kind of already having that as kind of a color signal to the other part, uh, people who are there just so right away you can see like scott you look like someone who doesn't want to change you know or something like <laughs> that and and kind of starting that conversation with one another and ice breaking in a way so what other topics are you looking to do in the future i see there's one more on the website that and kind of what else is you know in the future for this yeah that's a good question so i'm really also trying to embrace that pop-up idea um and so so i have you know, chatted with a few other organizations in the city who host um, events for young people and students, etc. And they've asked me, you know, oh, we're in April, we're hosting this event on this topic, do you want to collaborate? But my um, vision for this is that only when something becomes a hot topic, when it starts coming up in the news more and more frequently, and it kind of starts to boil over, like the pipeline when it, you know, August, especially when we held it right after Mm -hmm. that, almost like maybe a week later or so, I forget you know, the court made its decision. And so it was, it was really interesting. Although I've put that on the website, I've put a like TBC. I don't really know the date because when it starts boiling up again, those trade issues. And I mean, I'm really interested in the interprovincial trade, especially and those barriers. And I heard your last guest mm. um, who was talking about, you know, wine yeah. and, and how hard it is to even, you know, get wine from the different provinces as opposed to elsewhere in the world. When it actually becomes a hot topic, that's when we want to quickly step in in one night and be able to bring people up to speed on, for example, the pipeline, years of what has happened. So you've probably already come across this because I think I even asked it to you when I first like saw it coming up. Politics and entering these policy discussions always feels so loaded. People are always wondering, you know, what's the hidden agenda here? Where's the money coming from? Who's pulling your strings? So who's pulling the strings? Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you asked that. That was part of my intro spiel, but I didn't quite get there. So I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah, we are, this is a um, typical side hustle, especially for a millennial coming from a millennial. Seems like everyone that I'm talking to these days has a side hustle. And that's what this is. 
So I kind of work on it on weekends, evenings when I have free time. And this is just kind of a passion project off to the side. I've got a couple of friends helping me. I've picked up some volunteers here and there um, who've found me in some way or have come to the event and thought it was really fun and want to help out. And that's how we're operating. We have a really great sponsor, actually, and I probably should shout them out because they are really great. Clark's AV. They are fantastic and have been so supportive, always stepping in to say, you know, what can we help you with? And I mean, other than that, uh, we rely heavily on speakers donating their time. Um, We also rely on venues who give us, you know, big discounts or give us free space altogether. And other than that, that's it. And I think it's worth mentioning, like you sort of alluded to it with the pipeline discussion and what you're doing with the electoral reform, but you are trying to have a balanced panel of, you know, here's the two sides of an issue, or here's the different aspects in a fair way, right? Yes, exactly. And I think that's the key of not being tied to funding and not being tied to a political organization or party is that I'm able to bring together so many um, different viewpoints, lots of different people. I have a lot more say in how it operates. So being able to pick, especially, you know, a gender balanced panel, being able to pick ideologically balanced panel. So why do you want to go after millennials specifically? Why not make this a general public? Let's get everyone involved in politics more. Mm -hmm. I personally am a millennial and I know so many millennials who are educated, you know, driven, who are working these nine to five jobs trying to, you know, continue to progress and are volunteering and, and they're just really busy people and They really um, want to know about these topics, but I just don't feel that there's always an outlet for that. And so that's where this one comes in, as I mentioned, um, of being able to break down a topic for people who are so busy and just not able to keep up. And and part of the goal of Policy Pop-Up is also changing the millennial stereotype that's out there. At our events, we are also bringing together people who are not involved in policy, nothing to do with politics, but are millennials who also have side businesses, as I was mentioning, mentioning, because this is my side hustle too. Lots of people have side hustles, and so we want to showcase that. So part of the events as well, I forgot to mention this, we have space for them to demo, demo their work, um, their businesses kind of have a platform to show what they're doing. So at our last event, we had Clarity and Creation and Fly at Risk. And Clarity and Creation, for example, they do really cool artwork. And Fly at Risk, she makes custom ties and bow ties. And those are their side jobs. They have nine to fives, as I mentioned. And um, so we're trying to also break that stereotype that millennials are entitled, that they're lazy, and to show that here are a couple examples right here in this room of people who are hardworking, They've got something that they're proud of and that they want to show off and kind of opening the the space up. We also do that with our Instagram. We're showcasing various cool millennials and just giving them a platform to further reach people and to move policy out of the silo that I currently think it's in, where it's people who are interested in policy, policy students, political science students (laughs) (laughs) who are involved in these events bringing it into the mainstream and showing that we'll start from the basics, you don't need to be scared, and we'll break down the topic. The whole point is that you've come out, um, you're here to learn, and um, that's what we want to 
really emphasize that it's not a scary space, but a place where it's okay not to know everything. I myself, not a policy expert, but these are topics that I think are really important and I, and I want to have that venue of being able to bring people up to speed quickly and in a non-biased way. Well, why don't you tell our listeners where they can find out more if they're interested in attending one of these policy pop-ups. Mm-hmm. The best places to reach us are definitely social media. So we're on Twitter and Instagram. We're at Policy Pop-Up and on Facebook and LinkedIn, which we also just launched. We're trying those areas as well. We are Policy Pop-Up and our website is www.policypopup.com. But of course, if you know those things are too hard and you want to save your spot on October 22nd, you're totally welcome to just DM us and we'll add you to the list. No need to go through the website and the forms. We can we can add you no problem. And I just want to wrap by saying please come out to our next event. It's going to be really fun. It's like I said, October 22nd, 6 p.m. The Loft at Earl's Yaletown. Great. We'll have links in the show notes and I think I'm planning to be there. I just checked. I did register back when it was announced. So I will be yeah, there. Yeah, you did. Okay. Awesome. Thanks. Right. Thank you so much, Allison. Thanks, you guys. Moving on to segment two, BC secret giveaway. The BC Auditor General came out with a report earlier this week about tax expenditures. Some people's favorite topic? Well, apparently not Lindsay Ted's because she's just off Twitter <laughs> this week and this is her wheelhouse. Where yeah, are you? I, I, we... I was actually expecting to just see a series of tweets breaking this down so I didn't actually have to read the report. But The report was surprisingly readable for yeah, an Auditor General report on tax expenditures and... So what is a tax expenditure? Let's start there. Tax expenditure is basically where the government says, okay, we're not going to tax this one particular thing or we'll let you reduce your taxes for this one thing. It's an expenditure in the sense that it lowers the revenue that government takes in. It's different than a, like a refundable tax credit, which is actually just an expenditure report actually separates those two out. But short version is it's basically a tax break. That costs the government money and foregone revenue. The examples it talks about in here are charitable donations, tax credits, the homeowner's grant, exemptions for foods from the PST. Bicycles. Exempt, yeah. We didn't collect $23 million in taxes on bicycles because the government decided we probably shouldn't charge PST on that for some reason. I mean, this is why we didn't go to the HST because we wanted our ability to exempt bicycles. Which is a little less, just like 23 million, it's not nothing, and like I bought a bike a few months back, and I did not know about this until I read the report this week. Like, that is how... Little li we pay attention yeah. to the number that comes up at the cash register. Yeah, it's one thing if, you know, PST was put on the sticker price, yeah, that might actually have an effect, but nobody thinks about PST until they're actually at the cash register. So, back to the broad level of the report. In total, these expenditures cost the BC economy $7 billion. And I think we've talked a few times that the total scale of the BC budget is about $50 billion. So this is not an insignificant thing. And the Auditor General here is not trying to say, we shouldn't do this. It's just, we should at least be aware of it so we can have informed public policy debates. Although there's a few we probably shouldn't do. Yeah, and we'll get to that. The Auditor's big takeaway here is there's not actually a lot of good transparency around this. A lot of these exemptions are built into like different parts of the code. Some are only reported with like internal ministry budgets. Others come in the main budget that comes out every year. 
And so actually just piecing together this total sounds like it was actually a fair bit of work. And we haven't actually looked at these expenditures in 25 years. And some of them go back since the 1950s. Yes, although apparently the reporting on them only goes back to the 1960s in a very weird little bit where it talks about the homeowner's grant and references a 1967 paper or article or something the government said to explain the reason for the homeowner's grant, which I guess is because apparently we didn't have a Hansard before that point. Yeah, so usually you would know what a government has done by going and reading the records it produced, but BC didn't write down the debates that were happening until the Dave Barrett government in 1973, and that was one of the many, many bills he brought in was, hey, let's write down all these debates, because this might be important someday to figure out how the province works. But yeah, in 1957, there was this big debate about how do we encourage more people to buy and build new homes, you know, post-war boom and all that, and they introduced this homeowner's grant as a way to reduce the property tax burden on middle-class people, I guess. It's a very Justin Trudeau approach. And... We've had it ever since, and it now costs the province $809 million. Yeah, and not only have we had it ever since, we've been slowly ratcheting up the value of the home that's actually susceptible to this, including, what, like a year ago when the NDP raised it to $1.65 million? Yeah, so if your home is worth less than that, which most are, except in like this neighborhood in West End of Vancouver. Maybe most east side detached homes are that much these days. You get this discount. This comes under fire when we're going, why are we subsidizing homeowners and not renters, especially in a market where it's difficult to do either. So at least the Auditor General has brought this to light. And I think that was the long way around to what we really wanted to rant about, which is let's get rid of the homeowners grant, not just because we should stop subsidizing homeownership, but because it takes up 11% of this exemption. <laughs> yeah, I think that was the one that definitely stuck out to me as the why the hell are we doing this and spending nearly a billion dollars to subsidize people with $1.65 million homes? Yeah, I don't think either of us have strong feelings about the larger number, the $1.2 that's spent on food giveaways. I'm, because I think we need food. I mean, we need food, but I am... I do like not paying PST at restaurants. Yeah, and, and that's nice. And everybody likes paying less taxes. It's why nobody will ever, or it's very hard to run on raising taxes, but it does complicate things. It does reduce government revenue. And the reason for it is in part because it's necessity and in part because, you know, it's, you don't want lower income people having to, you know, pay taxes on a necessity. But I can't help but wonder if maybe just raising the rebate would actually kind of get to that point in a much better way and we'd still probably have some money left over. Like if we upped the rebate by 500 million we'd have another like 500 million left over for more spending we'd probably actually like on net it would be a more progressive way to handle this yeah it'd be administratively simpler like th th there's a bunch of reasons for, it, for where sure. i think that you know maybe exempting a bunch of stuff from sales stats is the wrong way to go also like if you're gonna do it at least like as a way to incentivize stuff announce it so like when i go buy a bicycle i know about this beforehand they probably did announce it the one time and then we just all forget about it like it's that one little boutique tax credit that comes out in one budget and you're like that's a good idea more people should bike like i think there's been hockey tax credits for buying hockey gear for your kids oh yeah probably i'm pretty the sure the harper level. government brought in like oh six oh seven yeah 
And those are the kinds you'll remember that year. Maybe you'll remember when you see it on filling out your taxes, but the rest of the year, no one remembers. The good recommendations here are all really around following best practice on reporting these, because I don't think the Auditor General was feeling like they were in the position to tell BC to get rid of any of these, but just sort of trying to raise it as, look, other provinces, the federal government, other countries around the world do have better models of calculating this total number and figuring out where all this money goes. And that can at least inform public debate. And then we can use that to kill the homeowner's tax credit. And we can go from there. I have a feeling the homeowner's tax credit will probably be a thing as long as there is a BC. But it wouldn't be the worst thing to get rid of. And, or at the very least, just stop raising the cutoff. Let inflation eat eat it away or something. But that's probably not going to happen. Speaking of as long as there's the BC, let's go into our third segment. It's the end of the world as we know it, and Canadians' politicians feel fine. The IPCC dropped another big report, the UN Climate Change Committee, and they're getting more dire. This new one has basically conceded we are going to rise 1.5 degrees Celsius as a global temperature beyond pre-industrial levels at a minimum. But if we can keep to that, which we can't do if we're keep doing what we're doing, and the Paris climate is actually two degrees, a lot of bad things happen. So they're really trying to go, it would be ideal if we only have half a degree more of warming, because we're already a degree up. If we go a full degree more, twice as many people die from lack of water, there's more heat deaths, seas rise 10 centimeters more, which doesn't sound like a lot until you live in the Maldives or right along the coast. Animals start dying off. Lots of bad things happen. So it would be great if this mattered. The report suggests that to meet this ideal only half a degree warming, we need to drop our carbon emissions by half of what they are right now by 2030, which is a little over 10 years away. And That's then aggressive. No, it gets better because we need to be done with carbon emissions by 2050. Zero. Hey. Yeah, in fact, some of the scenarios I saw, in fact, had negative carbon emissions as a requirement to... And you just start sucking it out of the atmosphere, which is just thing. Doable, hard to do in a cost-effective manner. So yeah, that's all really depressing. There was another line in some of the coverage that talked about how they did model 500 and some odd different future projections, and in only 2% of them are we able to reach our ideal targets. But yeah... Paris climate targets are insufficient. Canada's not on track to meet them, nor is the U.S., obviously, although some states are doing some things. And here we have Ontario, Manitoba, possibly New Brunswick, possibly Alberta, if Jason Kenney wins, all wanting to pull out of the National Carbon Plan. And maybe BC will do something, although we're also building a giant LNG plant that will put more carbon out net. So... Where's the optimism? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, the one thing I did see this week is that our per capita emissions are actually dropping in pretty much the entire industrialized world. So that's good. I mean, it's it's a, it's a start, full, you yeah. know, half a step in the right direction, but it's something. We haven't actually talked about this Ford rally. He was in Alberta, I guess, last week talking with Jason Kenney, and they held some big rally where they promised to kill the carbon tax and never use that and 
ironically, it was on like the same week when the Nobel Prize in economics went to the guy who has shown carbon taxes work as a way to reduce emissions. And I mean, you can hate on economics, but the irony is still pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it would sure be nice if the apparently market-oriented conservatives would actually be willing to use market solutions to this rather than stick their fingers in the air and pretend there's nothing wrong or pretend they have a plan when they have given zero indication of any details or any idea of what it's going to be what are you talking about andrew Shear totally has a plan and he'll bring it out closer to the election because they care about the environment and there is a chunk of the conservative core that does care about wilderness and conservation but i think they all need to get on the Climate change is real and happening very fast, and we are not doing enough. It, it becomes such a big issue at this point that I feel like no one's willing to grapple with it. Like there's no political upside to being the party that, other than for some Greens who their voters are the only people who seem to really care. But the average person, and maybe this needs to be a future policy pop-up, is how do we solve the climate crisis? <laughs> but yeah, it, let, let, but I don't know when... that out in two yeah. hours. But, but yeah, we do know BC has its climate change plan coming sometime soon. And that's my one little glimmer of optimism, because it sounds like it might be radical enough to at least set an example. Yeah, like how, how radical can it be when it also includes an LNG plant? That's the problem. And the other part is like, BC is a drop in the bucket of Canada's emissions, which is a drop in the global bucket. We should still take the moral leadership on this because otherwise no one's doing much. There are some good things happening in Europe, but we need all need to be pulling our weight. We can't just be like, oh, we're, too, we're small potatoes, so it doesn't matter. Yeah. Hopefully we see some good change and hopefully yeah. we don't all fry. Mm-hmm. Moving on to quick takes. Well, speaking of things that might increase the rate at which the world is going to end, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is moving into its next phase or re- starting to redo the last phase of the NEB process. Uh, they just The NEB just approved the interveners for Trans Mountain, as well as the government announced they're not currently seeking a buyer at this time, which is interesting because when they bought the pipeline, they were talking up how oh, we're going to sell this as quickly as possible. Yeah, so there's been a bunch of stories in the news about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but none are really big. The interveners, there were 123 people who put their names forward to tell the National Energy Board either why this is the best or worst project ever. They have to focus their arguments around the bit that was excluded previously on how the increase in tanker traffic will affect the orca population. So they've approved people like the cities of Vancouver, Victoria, Burnaby, indigenous groups, both in Alberta and BC, environmental groups, oil companies, governments of Alberta and BC, and the federal government and various departments of it. So lots of people, 98 of them in total were approved, just 25 are rejected, which is actually a pretty good odds that if you put your name forward, you'd get to make your case. I think it's reading tea leaves to try to figure out if you know, too many interveners or so many interveners are on this side or that side, what that will mean. Ultimately, the point of this kind of consultation is to listen, try to amend the project so that it meets the requirements. And we'll see where that goes. 
the news on the government sale is also a bit interesting because when the federal government first announced its purchase, it seemed like they were trying really hard to flip it right away. And then the federal court of appeal kind of made it a very toxic asset, not like a totally worthless piece of steel. So it's not surprising to see them kind of cool their ambitions on selling it. But the only other story I saw there was the city of Burnaby has also gotten back into the game by going to the Vancouver Port Authority and asking them to cancel the permits that have already been issued on, for example, the razor wire boom that goes out into the water to try to protect some of the area. Because I guess the city of Burnaby is like, well, the pipeline can't be expanded now, so you don't need these permits approved, which is a very weird Yeah, I don't follow that argument. Well, they're like, you can't build it now. Yeah, but it's still so like an active your... facility. There's still tainter traffic coming in out of there now. <laughs> Burnaby's just trying to be a shit at this point. It's what they're going to do. So yeah, the pipeline's still chugging along. It's still going to be in the news for another year to however many. And we'll have to see if they get the consultations right this time. Next up, there's a new study out of some UBC researchers on speed limits. So the BC Liberal government at one point went around and looked at a bunch of the highways we have in this province and used some research that I've come across before that seems legit to say the ideal speed limit for a stretch of road is at the 85th percentile of how fast people are driving. So if everyone's, because everyone's speeding anyway, as we all know who's driven, you try to not just approve that, but set it high enough that only a few people are speeding. Otherwise, you'll get people who go way too under the speed limit, cause more accidents, and it's dangerous that way. And so that was the theory. So they bump a bunch of speed limits from 70 to 80, 80 to 90. The Coca-Cola went from like 110 to 120, which is, that's as fast as, it's a good speed to go on that, maybe 125, but unless you have a nicer, faster car. I have a little Versa hatchback, and yeah, going any faster than that's not necessary. But what this study found is pretty definitively that all of these increases in speed have led to more insurance claims, more injury claims, and double the number of fatal crashes in a year-over-year comparison. Now, it went from 18 fatalities to 33, but on some of the broader numbers, it looks like it caused the opposite of what they were hoping. And so these authors of the study actually say, we actually recommend going back to the old speed limits and not using this 85th percentile model, but using a more safe systems approach. And they maybe speculate that the harsh winter climates or highways with mountain terrains should learn from these experiences and sort of resist the pro-speed advocates. Yeah, so the effects of winter roads may definitely be a contributor here. The paper doesn't actually break down kind of by season at all so it's kind of hard to pull that out which you know could be part of the issue you know 120 in winter is a terrible idea in a lot of cases depend on road conditions and you know this may be more of an argument to move to those kind of variable speed quarters like you see between um squamish and whistler uh, I, i'm a, trying to remember back to some of my traffic engineering class which is a long time ago yeah, it's definitely a cause for concern. There's, I mean, I remember it being fairly controversial at the time when this was brought in. So it wouldn't be worst idea for MOTI to do a review of this and actually see if it's 
worth keeping these or making some changes. Something else that came to mind when reading this is a lot of those rural highways have, you know, your odd, like, T intersection, access point or whatever, and, you know, that may be fine at 70, but if you're up in it by 10 or 20 kilometers an hour, I could see those becoming a lot more dangerous. So if they didn't also do infrastructure upgrades to better control access to the highways there, raising the speed limits on, I could easily see that being a cause of this. Anyway, it's an interesting study. I I think definitely calls for more uh, research into this. Yeah, and I know this is very timely as the BC government's also looking at returning photo radar again in some ways, and that gets a surprising amount of partisan bickering in this province because Gordon Campbell essentially ran on the I will ban photo radar and he did as soon as he was elected and it's that kind of populist policy making that John Horgan did by getting rid of the tolls if you can find a I guess traffic-based populist message you can win an election in BC like tear up the bike lanes (laughs) well it's got to be car related I guess And the bike lanes are municipal rather than provincial. It's complicated because photo radar can be really just a cash cow for police forces to try to ding drivers. And I am sympathetic that many speed limits feel way too low. Even in Metro Van, there are some like stretches of empty road that are four lanes divided, but 50. But on the other hand... Yeah, a lot of those roads are not kind of designed where the speed limit is the actual design speed but this is looking more at i guess you know the mountain highways highway one highway five and those kind of things that can be a little bit more treacherous and you know maybe this study is flawed it is open access free so we'll throw a link in there and if people want to refute it who know these statistics better than we do and it may also be that they looked at the year before the change and the year after and it might be two or three years after it went back to normal, you know, yeah, sort of that actually mean. could be something else. Is that this is just a thing where drivers are who are regularly drive the road are not used to it, and you know you have a a few excited people. Yeah, you have some changes that happen around there, and like I say it's I think definitely worth looking into more of this. It's, but I wouldn't necessarily treat this as a conclusive gotcha that some people are using it as. Like the authors of the study who are like, this is definitive. Yeah. And uh, the um, people using this as an opportunity to tap the liberals. But yeah. And that has been Politos. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politos.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PolitosPod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and get early access to our interviews at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send it to us. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.